Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found the flame. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about intuitive eating. And when I first encountered this concept, thanks to our guest today, as a matter of fact, uh, I thought this would be a surefire way for me to lose some of that extra baby weight without feeling like I was punishing myself, which is totally not the point, right? (laughs) So uh, I had no idea that I was going to be thrust into a full-scale identity crisis that actually put me in touch with my own internalized sexism, ableism, and healthist beliefs, which we'll define that in a bit in case uh, you're new to the concept of healthism, which I was. Uh, So intuitive eating was really my gateway drug into body liberation. And uh, while I still have quite a lot of work to do, I am just deeply grateful for the clarity that it's given me so far. Um, So I can't think of anyone better to talk us through what intuitive eating is and how it connects to deeper social justice principles and practices than our guest today, Kelsey Doman. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah. Well, I'll go ahead and formally introduce you since you um, are quite a badass. So uh, Kelsey is a licensed professional counselor and certified intuitive eating counselor in Northeast Portland, specializing in helping clients reconnect with their bodies, make peace with food, heal from religious trauma, and navigate the world through an LGBTQ plus lens. Uh, She received a Master's of Arts in Counseling Psychology, Professional Mental Health Counseling from Lewis and Clark University, and has worked in college counseling, inpatient psychiatric, and outpatient clinics. Uh, She's also served as adjunct faculty uh, as an instructor and practicum supervisor for Lewis and Clark University and UNC Greensboro. And additionally, she provides support and training to healthcare and community organizations that are committed to making their practices and policies more accepting and welcoming to diverse bodies. Thank you, Candice. I'm so honored to be here and so excited to talk about all my favorite things. (laughs) Well, to get us just really to jump in, um, I always like to try to orient to language first and and try not to assume that folks know all the jargon, um, especially when we're thinking about the world of intuitive eating. Um, So if you can just orient us a little bit to what intuitive eating is and maybe tell us a little bit about its origin story. Absolutely. So um, my understanding is that intuitive eating was as a concept, I'm sure has been around in various forms for various people, you know, since the dawn of human history, but got some real traction um, and became a more organized principle when two dietitians in California, um, Elise Elise Resch and Evelyn Triboli, with whom I've done my training, um, were finding that in their dietetic practice, folks were coming to them seeking weight loss and that they just were seeing that not work for people, that people were losing weight and regaining weight and on these crash diets and that the joy of eating was no longer present. And that this, you know, approach of intentional weight loss was not actually getting at these deeper issues around, you know, trauma and self-care and relating to our emotions and kind of dismantling these other systems so so anyways, and they were finding that this approach was was useful for people across 
different demographics and across different health conditions. Um, they in in their book they talk you know a bit about working with people with with diabetes and things of that nature, working with people with eating disorders. Um, and over time, this paradigm has really evolved to um, capture not only how folks can heal their relationship with food, but also, as you were kind of mentioning and I was starting to mention, how we can kind of look at these larger societal structures that inform how we relate to food and inform how we relate to our body and how so many of those systems are deeply rooted in in control and oppression. And so the body is a space that we commune with constantly, daily, and eating is something we do you know, daily, ideally, at least three times a day, plus snacks, or, you know, whatever that that is for you individually. And so I believe so deeply that once we start to heal our relationship with our body and heal our relationship with food and how we care for ourselves and nourish ourselves, that opens us up to so many other opportunities for healing on other levels. For me, I think this is so often kind of the baseline that we have to work with with folks in order to unlock um, other ways that we can trust ourselves and listen to ourselves. That I think such a great piece to bring in is that, you know, we're certainly going to be talking about relationship with the body as a function of intuitive eating, but how that also spreads into just other areas of trust um, with ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely, I want to circle back to the, kind of the process of, of engaging a client in a counseling space to whether it be intuitive eating or these like bigger principles of how our relationships with our bodies have been shaped kind of without our consent by all these other forces. Uh, Cause that is personally just a question I have of how to do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, okay. So you're naming that this uh, process, this you know, philosophy of intuitive eating started in the dietitian world. So can you say a little bit about how it jumped from nutrition settings into counseling spaces? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I don't want to claim to be an expert on all of the points of history, but my sense is that it became such a useful paradigm, particularly around ongoing eating disorder recovery, that there was just a really natural transition into that space. Um, because I think it just, it, it speaks on so many levels to all of these things that we that we do in therapy already. When we think about mindfulness and other somatic type interventions, and I know we, we both read that article about in, interoceptive awareness, all of these things are so crucial to knowing our body and knowing how we're experiencing ourselves emotionally. And so it just makes so much sense that, that we just can kind of plug that into what we're already doing. And, um, and I think there's a lot of really natural pairings too around, you know, thinking about kind of like dialectical thinking and challenging binary language around like food is good or food is bad. There's so many opportunities to expand cognitive flexibility and do all of these other things that again, we're already doing in therapy, but we're taking it and applying it to food. So it feels like a pretty natural transition that I think probably happened, you know, just over time. Um, and, and I think when I did my training, this was, you know, quite a number of years ago at this point, there were nurses in there. There were a few doctors there. I know that they have the option to become kind of like a layperson facilitator as well for people, you know, just in community groups. So this work, I think, really is for everyone in, in all kind of reaches of the medical community. 
and beyond. If we're thinking about what principles, what core ideas make up intuitive eating, uh, how how is intuitive eating different from how, at least in kind of a Western culture, particularly in American U.S. culture, we might relate to our bodies and food? Ooh, yeah, great question. Well, I would say it has to do with where we get our information and, and who's in charge. Um, so if you think about kind of what typical diet culture is, um, that often is a system where we're looking outside of ourselves for answers. So we're looking to, you know, the latest diet book, the latest trend. We're relying on, you know, other resources to tell us when to eat, how much to eat, what to eat, what are the conditions where it's okay to eat. Um, and again, everyone has their own individual relationship with their with their health and their care team. And sometimes there might be interventions that are necessary around that. But we also know that, that the medical establishment is so incredibly entrenched in diet culture and so often really well-intentioned practitioners, again, therapists included, um, are prescribing diets to people that we know are just not effective and we know lead to longer term negative health outcomes. So it, so intuitive eating is broken down into 10 principles. And so, and they were able to say them out loud, they are as follows. Um, and, and I would name that these are principles, not steps. So folks, mm. I think can be, come in at a very, at very different points. Like I get a lot of folks coming to me having already done some of this work and we might bounce around with some of the other principles. Um, and some folks come completely new to it and then we're going to work them all kind of in order, you know, or, or not. So, um, so anyways, they are as follows. So reject the diet mentality, honor your hunger, make peace with food, challenge the food police, discover the satisfaction factor, feel your fullness, cope with your emotions with kindness, respect your body, movement, feel the difference, and honor your health with gentle nutrition. So as you can see in that, the first step is rejecting the diet mentality. So letting go of all of these shoulds. This this intuitive eating, I think, is a homecoming. It's a real mm. return. Um, I, I don't know. I know you um, have kids and I imagine that you, you know, when they were toddlers or are still toddlers, like when it, when a toddler doesn't want to eat anymore, like how does that go for the toddler? What happens? They just stop the eating. They just stop the eating. And there's like yeah. no way that they're going to eat anymore. And similarly, if they want to be eating, they will literally cry and scream and throw themselves on the ground until they get what they need. Because yeah. we're born embodied, right? We're born knowing what we want and need. And that persists for kids for quite a while. Um, and usually when I work with people, we can pinpoint, like, what is the moment that you lost trust in your body? What is the moment? And again, usually for people, it's like, it's a moment or it's a series of moments that you, we can trace back to, you know, kind of our later childhood or, get to, or, or teenage years, depending on what the person's situation is. So, so the first step is, again, rejecting the diet mentality and having this homecoming to like, okay, I am in charge. I can listen to myself. I'm going to start to turn inwards with this. And, and usually when we start that work, um, a lot of folks still are kind of desiring weight loss. 
in that space. And that can be challenging because again, it's like we live in a culture that values thinness. So of course it feels natural for people to want that. Um, so depending on where someone is in that space, like I'm not here to help anyone lose weight. That's like not the point of my work, but we can kind of, like, how can we honor where someone is at and also just put that on the back burner. So that feels like a really important part of this. Of like, we're not going to focus on weight loss. I'm going to need to ask you to like, not have that be your goal. And we can keep talking about why you feel like it needs to be your goal. Um, so, so anyway, starting with that rejecting the diet mentality. And then from there, it goes through a pretty clear program, if you will, or a set of again, principles that help us reconnect with our hunger and satiety cues, get really clear on what are the food rules that we've internalized from culture and, and how useful or valid are many of those. And, and from there, we can kind of do little experiments with, with our eating of like what how does this feel in my body when I eat this? Um, we use like a hunger and satiety tracking scale. So folks can note it's, you know, common to try to track calories or whatever in, in more diet culture type spaces. So in intuitive eating, there's none of that, but we can get really curious about how hungry was I going into this meal? How, how full or satisfied was I when I, when I ended it? Um, and then from there, moving into things like honoring your body, honoring your genetic blueprint, um, and what is true for you in your body rather than trying to change it in a way that is just not real or sustainable or, or realistic. Um, and then finally, getting clear on how we can have a more joyful relationship with movement. And then um, the, the very last principle, and it's last for a reason, is honoring the body with gentle nutrition. So some people I think think intuitive eating is just, I'm gonna eat whatever the heck I want, whenever the heck I want. And and I think for some people there is that initial phase of like needing, to, I think I've heard people call it donut land where we need to have unconditional permission to eat all the things that were off limits for so long. Um, and then folks often find that they come back to just kind of this natural balance within themselves and then end up desiring a variety of foods once we're actually kind of listening and don't have all that rigidity of restriction. But but once people are really solid on that, then there is a little bit of room for gentle nutrition. And again, largely, and I don't do as much of that because people, people I, you know, my clients work with dietitians who, who support them in that phase. But, you know, how can we help you feel more full and satisfied? What foods can we pair together that will help kind of keep you till your next meal? So, so that's more the focus of the gentle nutrition than, you know, eat this, this, and this or else, you know? <laughs> Well, I, it's so interesting, the donut land piece, right? The the urge to just eat whatever you want, whenever you want as being, you know, potentially a, a really meaningful part of the process. I mean, I'm just thinking what you named earlier that folks can often trace back to a very early point in life when they started to mistrust, distrust their bodies, mm -hmm. that there's kind of almost this like developmental, maybe regression sort of aspect to donut mm -hmm. land, right? Yeah. It's like, I have to go back to the place where I abandoned myself yeah. and kind of heal that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go back to the toddler who just wants the donuts when they want the donuts. Totally, totally. And again, when you're talking about how did it make this bridge from dietetics to therapy, it's like, this is a huge piece of it. If we think about something like IFS, where it's like, we need to go and give this wounded child part of ourselves an update on where we're at, where particularly mm. if someone, and I get chills when I think about this, because it's very much part of my own story. But if we, if we had restriction 
in our homes growing up, like we have to teach this internal child part of ourselves that actually there aren't, there isn't restriction. Food is not bad. You get to decide what you're eating and when. And sometimes you're right. That absolutely can look like needing to engage with food in a way that until we can prove to ourselves that it's going to be available. And that looks so different for every individual person, um, depending on their history. But that is absolutely a critical part of the process. And I think people get freaked out where they're like, oh my God, am I just going to want to be here forever and just eat uncontrollably forever? I remember when I was reading the book the first time and I went through this phase of like, I just wanted to eat all the chocolate pudding. Uh huh. Yeah. And the terror that arose on that (laughs) second cup of pudding, that's like, this is your life now. You're never going to be able to rein this in. Like, I mean, it's so palpable. Totally. Totally. It's so palpable. It's so, it's, yeah. And I think, again, it's so countercultural to say, please sit down and eat this as much as you want, as much as you need until you feel satisfied. Like, that is not how we operate. And even as I say this out loud, there's part of me that's like, oh, yeah, I bet some people will hear this and not get it and judge me because that's just <laughs> that's just how it is. Like I've given talks before and people are like, wait, what? No, this is how we, you know, this is what everything that's wrong with America is what you're saying. Right now. But but the thing though, again, the thing that was we don't just do this willy nilly. There's structure and there's intention in it. So and I even have a worksheet that I do with clients. It's about like, are you ready to make peace with food? If you're going to eat a food that's been like a trigger food or, or a food that's been forbidden in the past, how can we do it in a structured way so that you feel really safe and comfortable engaging with this? Sometimes people will come to me and they're like, I'm doing intuitive eating and they just go off on their own and don't necessarily seek the support of a professional. And that sometimes is where Hmm. things can get. Who does that? Who does that? I don't know. Who would do that? (laughs) Sometimes that is where things can get dicey because again, and I am this person too, in various aspects of my life, I want to do all the things all at once and do it right and perfectly and thoroughly. And that is not something that works in this model. It just does Mm. not. So I'm trying to like the first time I, when I found intuitive eating kind of to be in my mid twenties, I uh, was working with um, with a, a therapist and a dietitian around it, and we, you know, were kind of sent forth to do some experimenting around eating a forbidden food. And I remember I went to the store and I bought a bag of Doritos, and I was like, I am so excited to eat the hell out of these. I'm not probably not allowed to say hell. Eat no, this we cuss the sun. Eat the fuck out of this bag of Doritos. I'm so excited <laughs> to eat these Doritos. And so, and I remembered the stuff with, I was doing this, tri- this like therapy group around intuitive eating. And I remember it was like, okay, I'm going to find a quiet time without distractions where I'm going to eat this food. I'm going to notice the texture and color and taste and feel of this and like be really present with this eating experience. I ate like three Doritos and was like, you know what? This is not as good as I thought it would be. <laughs> so there's this thing too where I think sometimes people need to eat, you know, X number of pudding cups in one sitting and are like, cool, I trust this now. And then I think I've heard of plenty of other people having an experience of when they slow down and really sit with it. It's like, oh, wait, do I actually even like this? Or is the fact mm-hmm. that I don't think I'm allowed to have it making me want it more? 
That's so interesting because that when you described eating three Doritos and coming to the conclusion that you might not actually like them as much as you thought, that feels terrifying to me because it's like, what if all the things that I think are actually satisfying and going to give me some moment of pleasure are lies? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, totally. Where do I go for comfort? <laughs> and that's exactly where this is the principle of honoring your emotions with kindness, right? Of yeah. Like, okay. If food... And I would say there is nothing wrong with turning to food for comfort, right? Like that is okay. And that is healthy. If we're doing it every single time we need comfort, maybe we need to broaden our skill, our skill set. Right. But, but I would say that we get things around that can be so villainized of like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, you like ate a cookie because you were sad. Like control yourself, control yourself. And, and I just don't think that that is, is useful because I think sometimes we need comfort. And I think particularly for folks, um, I see this a lot with folks with like history of kind of, you know, binge eating disorder or, or other just like trauma in the mix. Like food is always there for us. People come and go, people are inconsistent. People are shitty <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, but food is there and food can be so comforting and so valuable. And I would never want to dishonor someone's survival skills, mm. right? Like we might want to reshape the relationship with that and we might want to add some other things in the mix. But I don't think that that just casting it all aside is the answer. Um, so, which is a little bit of a tangent because the thing I was actually talking about was when you were saying, what if I eat all these pudding cups and realize it's actually not doing anything for me, right? Like what, that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> Because then what if nothing is actually going to soothe me? This is where we we put on our Buddhist hats, Candace. <laughs> I feel like I've turned that corner, but like that was still just a very real experience of like, if, if the pudding's not going to do it, then uh, what is? Yeah. I, and that is that is such a scary moment. I'm, I'm like right there with you. I think I had similar moments of, of many foods that I kind of work through in a kind of more systematic way of, of letting be more comfortably in my life of like, oh, this is like good, but this is not bringing me the, the joy or maybe the dopamine hit one could maybe say that it was before. And again, when I did my training with um, Evelyn Triboli, who wrote Intuitive Eating, she talks about how we want food to be neutral and everything is equal, which people have a hard time. Like I had a hard time with that where I'm like, wait, you're telling me that pizza and an apple are the same or that like a piece of cake and a bag of lettuce is all the same. And, and, and I like clients struggle with this one so much. And again, I get it because that is so not what we're taught. And again, there's a difference between what they might call like play food, like food that you eat just for pleasure and food that you eat like for nutritional density in a meal. That's not to say that like I'm eat candy for every meal because we all know that might just like not actually feel good in our bodies after a minute. But again, sometimes I give people homework of like eat cake for dinner and come back and we'll talk about it. And sometimes they're like, oh, wow, that was nice. But then more often than not, people are like, you know what? I actually was like longing for something like savory and more substantial. Mm-hmm. I can have cake later, you know? So, so again, it's all about little experiments. There's no hard and fast rules. It's just experimenting with, with all of that. But anyway, I keep getting sad. There's so many talk about this. But the thing, the thing though about what, what does it mean if it doesn't actually work for me? 
is such, that is kind of like the crux of all of this. That is like the moment of awakening to what all of the other, all of our other stuff is. That shines a light on all the other things. Like I have so many clients that I work with a lot of folks with bulimia and they'll come back and, you know, I was like, oh, I haven't binged in a few, or I haven't purged in a few months, but last night I purged. And I'm like, okay, like, what did that do for you? How did it go? And sometimes they'll say it was helpful. It like helped me feel less anxious. But over time, folks will come back and say it actually did nothing. And I felt terrible after. Like I binged to kind of numb my feelings. And then I purged to get the release. And then I just was left feeling sick. And it did not help me anymore. Mm. And that's kind of the same thing of like, if I, you know, the pudding cups maybe gave me some semblance of comfort at some point. And again, that's not to discount that that can be really valuable. Um, But then I think at a certain point, that isn't always going to be as workable. And then Mm -hmm. kind of look inward as to like, what is the other way that we might want to care for ourselves when we ideally get to that place where food is more of a neutral experience. Mm. Wow. Well, I'm definitely hearing how, as you mentioned earlier, how much overlap there there is with some of these intuitive eating principles and practices like radical acceptance, like yeah. how there's, you know, all resistance is welcomed in internal family systems, you know, just how there's this sort of embracing of what is, um, whatever that is, which is so powerful. I mean, I think that's so much of what makes therapy and so many other, you know, healing practices, you know, so valuable is it's waking up to what is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Waking up to what is and not pushing it put away, just like letting whatever is here be here and getting in touch with our desire. Like that feels like the other really important of it too, is we're so conditioned to not want, you know, again, it particularly as women, again, and I work with a lot of folks kind of transitioning out of like religious spaces, particularly in certain like biblical traditions, like the, this, the body is sinful. Don't listen to it. Right. And so I think there's this other really important piece of being able to sit with ourselves and say, first of all, what is, what is just true for me right now? What is that radical acceptance piece, whether it's about like, if I'm hungry or not, or what I want to eat or not. And then what, what do I actually want? Like, I think it is such a revelation for so many people, again, particularly for folks socialized as women who are, who are pushed outside of wanting and pushed outside of desire to say, what sounds good right now? Like, am I actually enjoying this meal? Mm-hmm. Am I actually enjoying this eating experience? Would I rather have a different eating experience? And once we do that, like, oof, that can just really translate to so many other things. There's a lot of good writing and, and research on relationship with food and sexual desire mm-hmm. and pleasure in general. Um, and the, the connections there are abundant. So it's just, this is like a gateway to so many other types of liberation, I think. Okay. So actually I'll, I'll swing back to the book for a second, because one of my favorite lines from the intuitive eating book is, was when the authors compared the way that society at large frames the natural urge to eat more after a period of restricting, we say that's overeating, 
But if someone had been underwater for several minutes, we wouldn't say that them gasping for air was over breathing. <laughs> totally, totally. Which mm-hmm. was a total light bulb moment for me. So I wonder if you can maybe just sort of unpack how the diet cycle works or doesn't work as it happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is a great question because I think that is such a big a big part of this. And these principles are ideally kind of some of the pathways out. So let's think of kind of like a common little vignette here. So I get a lot of people that come to me saying that basically life has happened to them. And as a result of being a person who lives a life, something has changed in their body that they don't like. So whether that's, you know, someone recently had a baby and they, you know, have noticed there are body changes that obviously come with postpartum life and that is not okay with them and they want to do something about it. Or someone's had a really busy season at work and they have not been able to care for themselves in the way that they want to. Or someone has gone through some type of mental health issue or grief or whatever it is. All of these things impact our body. Sometimes they impact the way that our body looks in appearance or size or composition, um, or it impacts how we feel inside of our body. So, so basically, some life has happened, something has occurred, and then someone comes out of whatever that experience is saying, well, obviously I need to lose weight. Or again, sometimes it can be for other reasons, but I think weight loss is what I hear about most. So there's some desire for weight loss. And then folks move into this planning period that I think can be pretty euphoric for people. Um, if I don't know if anyone's like me and likes to control things. Um, never. Small, small contingent of humans who like to have control. <laughs> so yeah, if if you are like me or like us, it feels very, very good psychologically to feel like we are regaining some type of control over a situation that feels out of control. So making a plan feels, again, feels good. <laughs> so that is sort of where the cycle really picks up is, okay, and I don't know if this has ever been your life. It certainly has been been my life. You get to the end of the weekend and it's like, well, this weekend I had a lot of tacos and margaritas and my diet starts Monday or whatever the old trope is. And uh, in intuitive eating, they sometimes jokingly or perhaps irreverently call that like last supper eating where it's, <laughs> where it's Sunday night and you're like, well, tomorrow on Monday I'm eating nothing but, I don't even know, nothing but kale. And so then Sunday night is the time where we're just going to like eat all the stuff that we know we can't eat come Monday, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of how the plan making works of, of I'm going to create <laughs> create some way out of this. And so then we do the plan, you know, maybe that involves a certain exercise routine or a certain kind of restrictive food intake situation. But then, and we do that for, you know, however long, I think that there's, again, in some of the articles I know that we have been referencing, there's, you know, mention of how for folks that period of being able to sustain those types of really intense restrictive changes becomes smaller and smaller, the longer we engage in dieting. And we know that in 95% of people who um, engage in intentional weight loss, they regain that weight plus more within a year. So again, like the, the, that process when we would, the first time we do it, it usually works pretty well. And then people get hooked on it and then keep doing it and returning to the making of the plan. So anyways, we have some dissatisfaction. We make a plan, we do the plan and that's going however it's going. And then at some point, again, 
life will happen again where we get busy or our body says, no, 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 I just really need to eat X, Y, or Z right now. Because again, our body's not going to let us, you know, starve it. (laughs) We're going to get those very natural impulses and urges to eat. And then it starts all over again. We just get caught in this big loop of what we could call like self-loathing and then shaming ourselves into doing something and then having the natural consequences of this deeply unsustainable routine occur and then getting all back into it all over. It's like very, very shame driven. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love too how you're you're mapping out that there there is this physiological, deeply physiological aspect to why this cycle doesn't work because our bodies, like you say, won't let us starve ourselves. Um, even if we don't think we're starving ourselves, we think we're counting our macros or whatever newfangled way. Right. Whatever sneaky way we're calling it these days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then there's this deeply emotional aspect of it too, especially if we're thinking about vulnerability to negative emotion. The more shame I cultivate, the more guilt that I cultivate in myself, the more vulnerable I am to unskillful choices to manage those feelings. So, I mean, gosh, just so many ways to get stuck. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay. So that's how, uh, the diet cycle kind of works. Um, so I was thinking too, I spent like most of my life believing that some form of dieting was necessary to maintain a certain weight. And then that, that certain weight range was necessary to be healthy. Um, so beyond that, I really only thought about weight, body shape, size to be an issue of self-esteem. Um, but what intuitive eating really helped to expose for me was how the way that we relate to our bodies is really deeply impacted by racism, ableism, sexism. So how entrenched it is in these, you know, like you mentioned, control and power kind of narratives and systems. So can you unpack that a little bit? Because I think that can feel so intellectual as opposed to like so much of a real lived experience, especially if we're in bodies that have a lot of privilege, right? So like, can you connect those dots a little bit? Yeah. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I actually teach a whole class on this um, that to university students that I love. But I, maybe before I even say anything about that, I feel like it maybe is important for me to kind of name the, the my own lived experience to kind of position that. So um, I am someone with a lot of body privilege. So I am a white, very Western looking cis woman. Um, I, you know, have had different body fluctuations over time as, you know, I've kind of managed my own disordered eating history, but, but pretty much throughout all of that, I've lived in a body that we could call like quote unquote straight size. So like I can shop at, you know, all mainstream stores, find clothes that fit me, have, uh, you know, sizes I could size up into and, and all the, have all that feel comfortable. So the, the world was built for bodies like mine. Like I can sit on an airplane seat without having to think about how the lap belt is fitting. I can ride on amusement park rides. Like all of these things, I can move through the world without having to think about the way that my body exists because it, the world is designed for people like, like me, you know? Um, and that is not always the case for most of my clients. And so, so I want to kind of hold hold that reality that I live in 
as something that's kind of complicated and nuanced because even though the world is generally designed for bodies like mine, my personal experience has still been so deeply impacted by the effects of diet culture to the point that I've been like quite unwell in the past. Um, so I think that this work is for everyone and we need all hands on deck. And I think it, there's, you know, as there is with any, you know, with, with anti-racism work and any, and, you know, anti-sexism work, there's, there's complicated nuanced layers of, on one hand, we want, you know, the people, the marginalized voices to be lifted up and, and those folks doing the talking. But at the same time, there's also the thought of like, we need, you know, people on the smaller end of the size spectrum to be educating other thin people so that the fat people aren't having to constantly do the emotional labor of explaining why. So I just want to hold that, that complexity um, as we have this conversation. Um, and just to say that I think this work benefits everyone and we all are so impacted by diet culture. There's this um, phrase that I was totally new to until I read anti-racist psychotherapy. The author talks about the glass cannon of white supremacy. So it's sort of like, yes, there are people who hold privilege who basically are lighting the cannon, which then harms, you know, folks in marginalized identities. But ultimately every time there's a shot fired, it explodes on the person who, you know, lighted the fuse. So yeah, everybody gets harmed in the process of, you know, valuing certain bodies over other bodies. And then as you name, like holding the complexity of that, that I still want to honor the privilege I bring by not being the loudest voice in the room while also acknowledging that I have work to do too. Yes. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and when I um, have historically taught fat studies, um, which is an actual class, like a university level master's class that exists in the eating disorder program that I've been on the faculty. In. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a piece too, and there's actually been, and I've maybe, we mentioned this maybe when we talked before, there's been a very big, reshuffling of things in the health at every size community right now around some of the voices that were really loud in that space being smaller white bodies. And there's been like a pretty big, and I won't get into the details, I'm sure folks kind of know about this already, but a very big um, reckoning around how we hold that space collectively and which voices we lift up and who gets to be kind of controlling the, the narrative, so to speak. So it just, it feels important to to honor all of that and, you know, continue to like, go read Sonia Renee Taylor, go read Roxanne Gay. Like, please, you know, I could make a recommendation list of a, of, you know, mile long of, of folks to have in your brain um, who bring that kind of, you know, more varied lived experience. There's like, there's so much there. It is, it runs so deep. So, and I know it was in some of my own kind of professional research, I've done a lot of looking at um, the social determinants of health and what that means for bodies that have historically been marginalized and oppressed. And so I think that the way that that shows up um, around racism is that we so often attribute people's health status to their individual choices. And while Yes, we do make individual health choices that can impact our health status or how we experience the world. It is so not that simple. But again, if we're talking about kind of this dialectical or binary thinking, we it's easier for our sweet little brains to think that like, if I eat more kale, I will be healthier, full stop, mm -hmm. right? 
But when we have that kind of mindset, we are not thinking about things like intergenerational trauma. We're not thinking about things like different genetic factors. Um, I think that one of the really biggest, like one of the biggest challenges that I see in my work is is talking about type 2 diabetes. And we know that there are some very strong genetic underpinnings for type 2 diabetes. Um, And again, like there are some things that can be modulated with you know, certain health interventions, but folks get so tripped up on talking about how folks with type two diabetes are just making bad choices, quote unquote, and are are harming themselves in that way. And that disproportionately gets pinned on black and brown bodies, right? And when we know that the impacts of things like slavery and racism and all these forms of oppression in this like in this country have impacts on the body that turn on certain epigenetic experiences that make folks more prone to disease. We also know that, you know, pieces around racism and classism absolutely impact where people live, what environmental exposures they have to things that can impact health status, how people can access care. Like all the, the intersection of racism and classism and healthism is so incredibly profound. And again, our brains and our policymakers, by and large, really want to pin all these things on individual choice making when we know that it's so much more complex than that. And I've seen various figures on this that it, five to 30, depending on which study you read, percent of our overall health status is related to our individual choices. And that, you know, involves things like what we eat, how much we move, if we smoke or not, if we're practicing safer sex, things like that. And the other, you know, 95 to 70% has to do with like access to clean drinking water, access to medical care and health insurance. Like what are the other environmental stressors? What are our genetic and epigenetic um, and kind of intergenerational trauma experiences that impact our health status? So... Yeah. So it's this very, very complicated thing that we collectively try to make really simple. And that usually means that things just get pinned back on the individual and their behavior modification. And we in mental health love behavior change. We want to talk about that all day long, right? Right. So that's where it gets sticky for us as professionals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think something that I, it's maybe only been within the last three or so years that I realized how useless BMI is and how deeply racist it is, you know? So uh, just thinking about this sort of like gold standard metric, supposedly gold standard metric that we use to classify someone as being healthy or not the BMI um, and how it's, you know, normed on thin white bodies. Um, And then you pair that with, medical racism. So I just, I imagine, you know, here's a black woman walking into her doctor's office in a larger body. Um, and maybe she's got lymphoma, you know, maybe she's got some, you know, completely non quote unquote weight related condition going on. But the, the first thing that the physician is going to see in name is weight and BMI. Yeah. Um, I think the there was a statistic that I think was in the Broken Lens article, maybe. I think mm-hmm. it said something like 60% of mortality can be is is more deeply correlated with weight stigma yes. than it is with weight. Yes. And yes. how that's such a nuanced conversation that when we are so focused on individual choice is like the only way to maintain health. Um 
that's not a conversation that's happening because that's about relationship. That's about community, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a very, a very deep dive to unpack all of the ways that, you know, systems impact health. So this term healthism, say more about that. Yeah. So that term showed up in the, I believe the 1980s, some dude whose name I don't remember, Um, but basically it's this idea that we are elevating health to like the highest of the high moral values. This idea that health is the end all be all thing that we are striving towards. The decline of religiosity in America, I think has helped, has led to people turning to other things to have community and kind of like moral connection around. And so there's this fantastic episode of Food Psych, which is a podcast hosted by Christy Harrison with Alan Levinowitz talking about this connection between um, religiosity and diet culture that I would super recommend to folks. But sidebar, but the thing that, that I think feels really important here is that healthism basically means that we have taken health and put it as the ultimate goal of existing and being. So that means that like we must and need to be healthy at all costs. Like that is what makes us valuable, worthy, good people. If we one are healthy and two, if we're not, we're pursuing that like nobody's business. Um, so there's this, it's interesting. I used to work at, um, a fitness studio for a hot minute when I was first, I like sat at the front desk and checked people in and the reactions that people, like I would just watch when people with larger bodies would come into that space and get all these like pats on the back, like at a girl kind of like really, like really condescending shit. And it's this idea that like people can be fat. And again, maybe I should back up and say, like, I, I use the word fat as what in this, you know, community that I'm part of is like a neutral descriptor of someone's body, just sort of like being short or tall. Some people have a more negative reaction to that word, but that that's how I how and why I'm using it that way. But this idea that we can people can be like good fatties as long, quote unquote, as long as they're trying to not be fat. Um, and so this idea that, again, we're pursuing health, we're pursuing health at all costs. That is the focus. And we feel that in our culture, like the way that people talk about food and movement, it is clear that that is something that we hold really, really tightly as a cultural value. And there's a lot of things that get sticky with that. But I think perhaps the stickiest thing is that quote unquote health, first of all, what does that even mean? Which is a whole other podcast. (laughs) Um, And two, that is not available to everyone. If someone is born with some type of autoimmune disease or some other type of, you know, disabling medical experience, like that is not something that they're going to have access to. And so we're leaving a ton of people out. We've seen that also in a very complicated way in the past few years in the pandemic. Um, And That also just leaves out the fact that some people are just in larger bodies. Like that is just true. Like that is just genetically what is happening for folks. And there are certain folks that will just always be at that larger size and, or again, many folks and trying to achieve some type of smaller body is just not realistic or appropriate or necessary. So, so yeah, so healthism elevates 
health as like our number one moral obligation. Mm-hmm. And I, I really wanted to highlight the healthism aspect because I feel like at least in my own experience as a counselor, healthism was like the sneakiest thing that I was not really aware of as being this underlying set of beliefs that I was operating on, right? Because I think especially when, um, you know, clients come in seeking care for whatever they're in mm-hmm. for, you know, I'm as, as a function of wanting to be a holistic counselor, I sure. want to look at their overall health and wellness. And so my kind of unchecked healthism, you know, would turn into this, you know, well, what are you eating? How, how are you moving your body? And even if it's not as extreme as just eat kale and run three miles every day, the harm is still there to perpetuate those ideas. So that was just a real, a major wake up call for me is to see how healthism was showing up in my own practice. So, and let's maybe kind of go there a little bit more because what I hear from, it's a super anecdotal, but what I hear from supervisees, from master's counseling students, from the folks that I'm in association with, mm-hmm. um, is that folks are super on board now to do work around racism, ableism, nationalism, yeah. misogyny, uh, but similar to myself, are not necessarily either aware or super interested in checking out the ways that they might be perpetuating fat phobia or healthism. Um, And I've even had some folks in the field who question whether it's ethical not to help clients with weight loss goals if the client feels that their weight is contributing to some aspect of what they're coming in seeking treatment for. Um, So what can healthism, these sort of fat phobic biases, what can they look like? How can they show up? in a counseling relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I want to speak just really quickly to this, like, oh, is it ethical to not help someone with weight loss? And most of the dietitians that I work with would say it is unethical to help someone with weight loss because there are like zero studies that demonstrate sustained large-scale effective weight loss over a five-year period. Well, people can sustain for like a year, but then our bodies get back online. So like I have yet to see any like really good data on long-term sustained weight loss that affects more than a very small percentage of people. Um, so yeah. So how does that show up in the room? So one of the things that comes to mind is just like the, what happens in the room when we are sharing space with someone whose body is really different than ours that can be really challenging to navigate. And that feels kind of like the number one thing that just, this isn't so much healthism as it is just like a therapy thing that happens when we're doing this work across size. And so it feels very similar to when we're doing work across race. So if we're, you know, sitting in the counseling room with someone who's a different race than us, there's, you know, a lot of best practices around how to broach that conversation effectively and talk about, you know, our own privilege and that, you know, can happen in a number of different ways, depending on what the relationship is like. And that's not the comfiest thing for everyone all the time. Right. Um, But I think people have an even harder time doing something like that when it comes to talking about size. Mm -hmm. And so that when I'm working with students or, you know, interns in my practice is something that we have a lot of conversations around. Um, Like, how can you really gently just name what is true 
Um, and I think I find myself saying to clients a lot, you know, like I, I hear what you're saying. And as someone who moves through the world in this body that, that I do, I'm not going to pretend that I know what that's like. So can you tell me like what you mean when you say that? And, and just, I have had people when I have just acknowledged that just like burst into tears and say like, no one has ever just been wow. that real with me because I just named it. Cause I think so many, like if I had so many people come in and say that people around them say like, oh no, you're not fat, you're beautiful. Like that's this like very weird gaslighting, taking away someone's experience and then saying, well, fat is not beautiful. Like this, whereas like, can we just have a neutral conversation? Again, it's hard. This is not what everyone's comfortable doing. Can we just have a neutral conversation about how we have different lived experiences of moving through the world in our bodies? And I think the answer is yes. And I think it's really important. I think how we do that again varies a lot depending client to client. So, so that's one way that I think it just feels really present and the healthism feels really present. Um, and then in stuff as simple as like treatment planning, I think that clients will come to us and say, well, my goals for therapy are, I want to lose 10 pounds or whatever. And so I think that some therapists will just roll with that and say, okay, cool. Like, or, or maybe even go as far as to suggest that they do that. Um, I hope not, but I'm sure that happens or I know that happens. But I think that our job, when we hear clients coming in with something that is one, kind of in this healthism bucket, and two, is deeply outside of our scope, like we are not medical doctors, like we are not dietitians, we're not, that's not our job. I feel pretty strongly about that. that. That is not part of our training, is counseling people on weight loss, like at all, that is not our job. Um what our job is to do is say, okay, well, tell me what it would mean for you or tell me how your life would be different if you lost weight. Tell me how you think people would experience you. What are your kind of beliefs about your own worthiness related to this? And getting really digging really deep on that while also just honoring, again, that the world is designed for a very narrow range of bodies and our medical system is designed to accommodate and honor a very narrow range of bodies. So I think our job is to unearth, like, what is the therapy thing under whatever this kind of health-oriented desire is? Well, and I love that you're, you're naming curiosity as kind of the technique there, right? Because that was a question that I had was... At being kind of relatively new to this way of thinking, as I think in any time we're new, at least what I have seen as a supervisor, anytime someone is new to a technique, um, our urge is to be super heavy handed with it, you know, and to just proselytize about it. And so I have certainly done that. You know, I had, I'm thinking of a client in particular who uh, we worked together for a very long time. And so it was well into our relationship that she started talking about her weight mostly because she came in very depressed and had lost a lot of weight. Mm. She started to get less depressed, thankfully, started to regain weight because she felt like eating again, um, and then wanted to shift gears and, and wanted to focus on, I don't want you to help me lose weight, but I want you to help me stick to the behaviors that I know work for me to lose weight. You know, So she was like mm. kind of sneaky about it. And me, fresh off of like chapter three of intuitive eating was like, this is sexism. This is (laughs) internalized massage. I mean, just like slapping the, you know, table kind of, you know, situation. So 
But as also seems to be the case, curiosity is so much more effective to get people to come to their own conclusions. Um, I'm just thinking about how unaware of diet culture clients can be. So let's say you hit a wall with the curiosity piece. How do you meet someone where they are if they're really not going to relinquish or bend at all in their grasping to diet culture, fat phobia, Mm -hmm. these sorts of pieces. So does that to you feel like, oh, we're kind of at a stuck place and I'm not sure how we're going to move forward? Or what do you do with that when someone's just clearly not, you know, picking up what you're putting down there? Yeah, totally. Well, I would say for starters, if I do a phone consult with a new client and they are like hellbent on weight loss, I will say to them, like, I might not be the person to do that with you. And I'm just really upfront about how I operate. Um, that said, plenty of I get plenty of people coming in saying, like, I've read intuitive eating. I found you online. I want to do this work. But also, I want to lose X amount of pounds immediately. And, and so it's hard. Like it's hard. And again, I'm relating to what you're saying about when you're in the early stages of any type of identity development and whether it says, you know, an intuitive eating and health at every size practitioner or whatever it is wanting to like hit everyone over the head with the book and say, this is the only way. Um, and I think that instead of saying, no, 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 weight loss is bad. Never do that. That's, you know, not helpful. I think there just has to be room again to, to be curious about what and why that's coming up for someone. So again, kind of what I was saying of honoring, like, okay, the world, like your world might be easier and your mobility might be easier if X, Y, and Z occurred for you. Like, let's not pretend that that's not real because I think that the thing that that I feel so aware of in this moment as we're talking about this is we don't like see or talk about fatness, right? Or like we see it, but we don't address it in a lot of spaces. Like we're not, I think that people in fat bodies have felt from what I've heard from folks, like again, pretty gaslit and pushed aside because we don't have culturally created ways of talking about those challenges. So I think just like let, or if we do, it kind of comes back with that really intense body positivity. Then of like, just love yourself. It's fine. Like there's nothing wrong with you. There's no in between. Yeah. There's no in between. And again, there's room for that. And there's room for degrees of that. But I think that just like letting it be true for folks that it can be very hard to navigate the world in a fat body and like listening that to that and validating that, I think can be the thing that gets us unstuck. Mm-hmm. Well, it feels like something that I, I feel like I'm kind of on repeat with supervisees a lot is that awareness of a thing really does change the thing. You know, we don't have to be implementing or forcing super fancy technique, if we can just facilitate awareness and clear seeing, then mm-hmm. we will see it differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this work takes time. I mean, if someone has spent decades of their life entrenched in diet culture and believing that sin is the only way, then 
that's not just going to happen in, you know, overnight or in a few months or probably even in a year. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that, this is the long game. Well, I'm wondering if you might share with us a brief exercise for something you might do with a client who is coming in with maybe intense body shame, but who's open to testing out, feeling out what, how, how they might be able to be in their body and feel differently. Um, what's the go-to exercise for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's, yeah. Can I, can I lead us in a little mindfulness exercise that I think let's would do be, it. be perfect. Okay, cool. Well, for you, Candice, right now, and for anyone listening, if it feels comfy and you're not driving in your car, um, I invite you to close your eyes and drop into your body. Allowing your breath to settle, noticing the sensation of air moving in and out of your nostrils, noticing the rise and fall of your chest, noticing the rise and fall of your belly, and allowing yourself to sink in to this moment and into your body. Feeling where your body makes contact with the support beneath you. Noticing what it feels like to be in your body today. Perhaps engaging in a quick scan from the top of your head, down through your torso, arms, belly, hips and pelvis, down through your legs and down to your feet. And noticing if there is a place in your body where you experience some form of discomfort right now. If there's a part of your body that feels uncomfortable, tense, tight, dissatisfying in some way. We're not going to try to change that or do anything about it right now, but we're just going to notice where in the body do you experience some discomfort. Take a few breaths here. And then I invite you to, again, maybe do a quick scan again and notice if there's a place in the body that feels pleasant or comfortable. And if you can't find something that feels pleasant, maybe just find a space in the body that feels neutral, a place that you can return to when other experiences of discomfort or body dysmorphia or other forms of dissatisfaction arise. Maybe that's your hands or your feet or your earlobes or your fingernails, if other parts of the body feel really hard to be in. Just finding that place of neutrality. Again, just being curious. All the while breathing in and out. And then finally, 
If it feels comfortable enough, I want to invite you to bring your awareness to your belly. Have you been breathing down into your belly? Or have your breaths been getting stuck up in your chest and in the upper part of your body? Seeing if you can extend a breath down into the belly and allow the belly to expand. And noticing, depending on what you're wearing, where your body makes contact with your waistband. Maybe thinking about what your relationship is like with your belly and with your waistband and where your belly makes contact with your clothing. Seeing if you can take a really deep and full breath here to expand the belly. Knowing that in a world that is constantly telling us we need to be smaller, that making our belly big and joyful and comfy and full of life-giving breath can be a radical act of resistance. Mm. That breathing deeply into our belly can be a step further towards reclaiming our own embodiment and reclaiming a sense of trust in our bodies. Mm. Taking a few more breaths here. And then extending a silent thank you to yourself for showing up for this practice and extending a thank you to your body for showing up for you every day. Your body has gotten you through all of your bad days. And I invite you to see if throughout the rest of your day or your week, you can take a few moments here and there to feel gratitude for your body and all that it does for you. Then whenever you're ready, you can bring awareness back to the room, maybe bring wiggle fingers and toes. And when you're ready, you can flutter your eyes open. What a powerful act of resistance it can be to breathe fully into your belly. I mean, just goosebumps. You know, and I'm, I'm just... I'm connecting with how meaningful it is to to share that thought with another person, you know, to be in the, I mean, that just felt just so deeply meaningful to me and so much more powerful than any sort of self-talk that I've tried to just generate, you know, is to just hear it out of somebody else's voice and then experience it in my own body. Um, just amazing stuff. Thank you. Yeah, th- this is work that is best done in community. This is work that is best mm. done when shared with others. Um, I've done a lot of individual intuitive eating counseling, but I think when we do groups together and hear other people with our shared struggle, which um, is most everyone, um, that's, I think, where the, the potential for, for real magic you know, gets even more. Mm. Well, I am just so deeply grateful to know that you are out in the world doing this work. Um, and certainly grateful for your time today. So thank you again so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been such an honor and, and privilege to get to be here today. I 
I think this work is so important for all of us. And I just appreciate the opportunity to share this, you know, concept that I, that I love so much that has been so deeply healing for me personally. So thank you. All right, everyone, that is our show for today, but it doesn't have to be the end of the conversation. So if you have experiences with intuitive eating, with healthism or fat phobia, particularly in a counseling environment, then feel free to send us an email at beyondtherapy at creaseman-counseling.com. You can also reach us and follow us at Beyond Therapy Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And finally, if you're interested in getting some continuing education credit for your podcast time, then head over to our NBCC approved learning platform at beyondtherapy.thinkific.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry signing off. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.priestman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.